last week, if you remember, Jesus on the mountain, transfiguration, he's all white. He's up there with Peter, James, and John, and they're amazed. And then this cloud comes down. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. That's where we ended. We're going to pick up in verse 9. So as they were coming down, that's Jesus, Peter, James, and John. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. That's a theme throughout Mark. Jesus keeps his identity a secret. Uh, he doesn't want people to know that he's the Son of God because he's a, they're going to try to make him a king in a political way. You see that in the Gospel of John. That's not the route that he's taking. He doesn't want his ministry or his mission to get hijacked. So he says, let's just keep this among ourselves. So they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, uh, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus said, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. They've done to him everything they wished, just that it was written about him. We'll pause here. Uh, we, we hit this pretty hard a couple of weeks ago, so I'll just quickly um, gloss back over it. Expectations. The disciples, they, they still don't get it. Peter very recently, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the one sent by God. Jesus said, you're right, that's it. They get it, they know who he is. They're up on this mountain, Jesus' clothes turn brilliantly white, they see a cloud, they hear the voice of God. It can't be clearer who Jesus is at this point. They still can't reconcile his identity with their expectations. There's a shoebox full of this is what the Messiah does in their mind, and they can't empty the shoebox. And Jesus, he just, he's not fitting at all. He's talking about dying. That's what they're discussing what rising from the dead meant. It seems pretty plain what rising from the dead means. For us, we're on this side of Easter. They were before the cross. They can't get it. Again, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. This doesn't make sense how Jesus is holding both of these things together. For us, the point, expectations, our expectations are stubborn. We all have a distorted view of Jesus, every one of us. We all have some caricature of who God is, and we relate to him that way, and it affects, again, how we relate to him, how we relate to one another, and how we see ourselves. And it is crucial that we put that stuff in front of him on a regular basis. You don't have to do it every day. That will make you neurotic. But on a regular basis, you need to be opening your heart. Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth, show me where I'm missing it. Where, what aspects of who Jesus is do I just not see? Are there parts of him that I'm overemphasizing? Other parts that I'm underemphasizing? Regularly, you need to put it, you need to be opening your heart to that. Otherwise, you're going to go through huge chunks of your life confused, missing who Jesus is, and, and worst case scenario, working against what he's trying to do in your life and in our community. And you don't, you don't want that. I don't know if you have a Bible reading plan or not. If you do, every quarter you need to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Pick one, I don't care. You need to read one a quarter. You don't need to spend too much time away from the Gospels because that's the, that's the picture of who Jesus is. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, that's fine. Same for you. Once a quarter, you need to be in one of those four books. It's a, that's, the, again, the clearest picture we have of who Jesus is, and all of us have a distorted image. It's based on all kinds of things. It doesn't matter where it came from. What matters is fixing it, and the only way to do that is to put it in front of him. So expectations, they're stubborn. What about this stuff with Elijah? Elijah is John the Baptist, and again, it's the same thing. They were expecting John the Baptist to come and restore all things. They had a picture of what that would be. 
and, or Elijah, excuse me, to come and restore all things. And when John the Baptist comes preaching repentance, he is. He's talking about restoring your heart. They were looking for him to fix stuff in the world. And so they missed him completely. And Jesus follows up and says, he's already come. So yes, I can be the Messiah because Elijah has already come. Why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? I don't have time to go back and read this. Isaiah 53, you can write that down. Go read that sometime this week. And it's clearly written, this guy, this Messiah would suffer. But again, it was just difficult for the Jews to hold both of those things together. They, they saw two different people, this servant, this suffering servant, and this son of man or this Messiah. Jesus held both of those things together. And so he's saying it's written because it has to happen. All right, we've got to move. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder. They ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he said. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. To me, this picture is like a school fight. If you, a public school fight. I didn't go to a private school. Y'all might not fight in private schools. So, public school fight. You got two folks in the middle, and they're pushing, and they're shoving, and they're trying to decide are they going to fight. Then you got the whole ring of people around them. And depending on your relative status in the school, that's how close you are. The seniors, the inner ring, the freshmen are on the outside, kind of jumping, trying to, trying to see over what's going on. That's what this is. You've got the disciples, these nine disciples who didn't go up the mountain, and these scribes, these teachers of the law, and they're toe-to-toe, arguing, maybe pushing and shoving a little bit. You've got this man and his son who are collateral damage over here on the side, and this ring of people. They don't have anything else to do. There's no TV, so they're watching this fight. Jesus comes down from the mountain, and that's what he sees. A couple of things on this. One, the father's expectations were legitimate. He had every reason to believe that he could bring his son to the disciples and that they could help him. Kind of the the idea at this point, if you're a disciple of a rabbi, your goal is to be just like that rabbi. You want to talk like him, think like him, and do what he does. I think the phrase is, as the man is, so are his messengers. So for the 12 disciples, this man knew, this is what Jesus does. He heals people, and he, de- he delivers people from demonic oppression. And so he has every reason to believe that his closest followers would be able to do the same thing. He was right on taking his son to the nine disciples. And the disciples had were, were right on in thinking they could help him. In Mark 6, Jesus sends them out two by two. This is what he says. Calling the 12 to him, he sent them out two by two. He gave them authority over evil spirits. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil, and they healed them. They'd had success in this area before. This boy is demon-possessed, and they'd had success driving demons out, so they had every reason to believe they would be successful this time as well. The, The expectations of the father are legitimate, and the expectations of the nine are legitimate as well. For us, 2 Corinthians, I think it's 5.20, we're ambassadors for Christ, as if God is making his appeal through us. We're supposed to look like him, talk like him, act like him as well. Whoever you're connected to relationally, it is 100% legitimate for them to expect you to look, think, act like Jesus. It's Romans 8.29. God's desire to conform us into the image of Jesus. And it is totally right 
for the people we're connected to, Christian and particularly non-Christian folks who we're connected to, to expect us to look like Jesus and to do the things that Jesus did and to talk like Jesus talked, to have his value system, his priorities, all of those things, his character. No pressure involved in that, but that's what it means to be a disciple. It means I'm trying to become like my master, this rabbi. That's for all of us. That's the expectation that God has for us, and it's legitimate for the people we're connected to to expect that of us. And it's also legitimate for you to expect to be used like Jesus was. We've said before, Jesus didn't do what he did because he was the son of God. He did what he did because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is available for all of us. Jesus himself said we'll do greater things than him. God's desire is to conform us into the image of his son. All of those things lead to you should expect to become more like Jesus. You should expect for your heart to be changed more and more, uh, to look more and more like his. And you should expect God to use you in your network of people and in your community. You should expect that when you prayed for somebody that God's going to answer that prayer. Not because you're great, but because the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive within you. Because you're a son and daughter of God. Son or daughter of God. Those expectations that these original 12 had, both from the crowd and for themselves, those are the same expectations we have for ourselves and from others. So at some point, as we're doing this, we're trying to follow Jesus. We're going to be put in situations regularly where we have to trust him. And you can't trust without trusting. It requires faith. There's a risk involved. So faith is the gap between what I know I can do and what needs to be done. So I can do, and this is what the situation requires. This gap right here, that's faith. That's where trust is necessary. So the disciples for them, that's a big gap. They can't do anything for this boy on their own. That's a huge step that they're looking to take. But for each of us, whether it's a ministry deal, uh, relationship, business decisions, personal finances, whatever it is, in terms of following Jesus, he is going to regularly ask us to make steps of faith. And some of them are baby steps, and those are great. Some of them are much larger, and that's more difficult to bite off. But there's always, if, if there's no gaps, then there's no reason for you to trust the Lord. And he doesn't work that way. So there's going to be gaps. I was reading a book um, this week, I can't remember what it's called, but the, the story, the opening story, this guy's in Chicago. He's at the Chicago Zoo, and he's with a friend of his. He's a pastor, and he's with a, a friend of his who's also a pastor. And they're listening to a zookeeper talk about African impalas. That's kind of like a deer, I think. And this zookeeper is saying these impalas, they can jump 13 feet from standing still, straight up. And if they're moving, they can jump 30 feet horizontally, 13 feet vertically, 30 feet horizontally. And the, this guy raises his hand and says, you've got a three-foot wall around them. How in the world do you keep these impalas that can jump that high and that far in this little enclosure with a three-foot wall? Have you hamstrung them? What, what have you done? And the guy said, no, we're taking advantage of a weakness in the impala. They won't jump if they can't see where they're going to land. So we build a three-foot high wall. They can't see over it because they don't know where they're going to land. They stay right here. They could, they could clear it as babies. They just don't. That's us. Faith is jumping over the wall when you can't see what's on the other side. 
for many of us, we're hemmed in by three-foot walls. We could jump over them easily, but we don't because we can't see what's on the other side. If you're going to follow Jesus long, you're going to have to be willing to jump a wall when you can't see where you're going to land. That's the faith gap that he's looking for. So at some point, you're going to do that. You're going to be asked to do that, and at some point, it's not going to work out. You're going to be like these disciples. You're going to take a risk. You're going to pray. You're going to abracadabra, whatever they did to try to help this guy, and it didn't work. And then you're left with the mess. Three, three options for you. You're embarrassed. You're the guy that took the risk. You're one of the nine disciples. You stepped out in faith. The whole thing blew up. You're embarrassed for yourself, and you're most likely embarrassed for Jesus as well. And that's, I think, where the disciples are. They're supposed to reflect him, and they failed. So it doesn't only look poorly on them. It looks poorly on him. You might be that. You might be a critic. You're a scribe. If you're going to take risks, there are always people who are going to stand on the sidelines, and they're more than willing to tell you where you messed up. And we've got to learn how to live with that. If you're someone who tends to fall in that critic category, nobody wants to own that. Ask somebody who's close to you, and they'll tell you if you're a critic. If you tend to do that, if you're an I told you so kind of person, that's a killer in the body of Christ. Enough of us wrestle with people-pleasing, and enough of us wrestle with fear of disappointing other people, and enough of us already wrestle with the weight of other folks' expectations. The last thing we need is to know there's a peanut gallery waiting to shoot us once we've fallen down. I spend a lot of my week talking to a lot of people about a lot of things. I've never had to point out failure to anybody. People are keenly aware of when they've messed up. The last thing they need is somebody to point it out. If that's you, and a lot of times if you're a critic, it actually, it's most likely, unless you're just a jerk, which I don't think you are, most likely you have this righteous streak in you. Everything is black and white. Everything is right and wrong. And it's, it's, it's good. But when you shift over to your flesh, it's just it's harsh. There's no compassion in terms of how you're dealing with somebody else. And you take something that's your opinion and you, you state it as gospel truth. We, we're tempted to criticize when people do things other than we would do them different than we would do them because the reason we do it is because we think it's best and right. So if you do it a different way, well, by definition, you're wrong, and it's worse, right? The reason I'm doing this is because I think it's the best thing to do. Steve says Steve would do it another way, so one of us is probably wrong. We're opening ourselves up to criticism. Again, if, you're, if you lean in that direction, what I want to say is lean back the other way. Ask God to transform your critical so you're not a finger pointer, so you're a hand holder. Tons of people need to hear, I'll help you out. Not, I told you so, but I'll help you out of the ditch. That's the body of Christ. If we're going to function together and encourage one another to take risks, to try to do our deals, people are going to fail publicly and spectacularly. And in those moments, we have to decide how are we going to respond. Are we Are going to kick them in the teeth or are we going to pull them up? We want to be people who pull them up. If you have a family of your own, for the love of God, I mean this, if you're a criticizer, you will drive your spouse and your kids away. They will cut you off as soon as they can. You're gonna, they're going to wilt under this. You don't have to do that. 
That's not what it means to be the leader of the family, and that's not what it means to be a dad. It doesn't mean you always point out when everybody else is wrong. They already know. Figure out how to hold your hand up and pull them up. It'll change everything. They'll actually want to hear what you have to say instead of tuning you out. All right, enough of that. Confused and the wounded. This is the father and the son. You might have been this the, back in the fall. The first Sunday of the month, we started having communion, and we intentionally said we're going to put communion here in the service, and then after you take communion, we'll pray for you. If you have a physical need, we want to pray for you to be healed. And the first guy that came up, his name was J.D. Walker. He was here at um, 9 o'clock, and he came up, and he had the sniffles, and I prayed for him, and he was sick for a month after. He got the flu. Dead serious. He missed work for 7 to 10 days. I felt awesome. Come forward with the cold, you leave with influenza. That's what we do here. That, it happened. What am I going to Somebody's coughing in the back. Don't come forward for prayer for me. You find somebody else. No, I'm joking. So that's, that's it. You know, we try to take risks. And that's a small one, praying for people who are sick. That's not a huge deal for most. I mean, That's basics in the kingdom, particularly something like a cold. We figure, well, even if God doesn't heal it, time will. We kind of feel like we're going to get a win on either side with that. But it can be messy at times. Again, you're you're going to take a risk. It's not going to work out at times. How do you respond? If you're JD and you get sick for a month, if you're me and you prayed for the guy and it doesn't work, if you're a critic who says, well, you should have done it, this way, or your oil didn't come from Israel, and so that's why it didn't work, or whatever it is. How do we respond to that? And you see very plainly. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. That's, we need him. If you're embarrassed, if you've taken a risk and it hasn't worked out, you, you need Jesus. We can help you some, but you need him. You need him to tell you it's all right, that he's proud of you for taking a step. He'd rather see you fall on your face then cower back in fear. If you're a critic, you need Jesus. Ask him, in addition to this righteousness thing that you have, which is incredible, ask him for some some compassion as well. Put those two things together and you've got something. Someone who can clearly see right and wrong with someone who has a heart for people. There's something there. If you're one of the wounded or the confused, why didn't this work? Why is there no fruit? How come things seem to be getting worse instead of better? You need Jesus. There's no manual. It's just him. That's what you need. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. I think that's exasperation. Uh, We don't have a lot of time on this. Just I think, to me, I'm combining Jesus after he's baptized and he hears, this is my son whom I love. And then he goes off into the desert and he's tempted immediately after this high divine encounter he's immediately confronted with divine resistance I think that's part of it and for us it's just know that I heard a guy say one time every yes will be tested and that's kind of what's going on here Jesus is just at this moment with his father where everything's looking great and the first thing that happens is he's hit in the face with this demonic resistance we just need to be aware that's how the enemy works he's always looking to steal what God has done I also think so to me in Jesus's heart he's got this That's kind of going. And then you've also got this thing, Moses, coming down the mountain with these Ten Commandments. And he goes down. All of his guys are worshiping a golden calf that his brother made. And he breaks the commandment, these these tablets, because he's so frustrated. 
we're prone to waver. That's who we are. We're, we, just, we do that. We waver. We go back and forth. We can be fickle. That's why it's so important for us to have deep roots that last through, where circumstances don't affect our fundamental trust and relationship with the Lord. All right, we've got to go. So they brought him. They brought this boy. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground. He rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. The devil doesn't play fair. There's no way, I think, that this boy, when he was four or five years old, had some kind of seance or something and gave his life to the Satan. Come and fill me with your evilness and make me have seizures. I it didn't happen. The enemy takes advantage of circumstances, usually traumatic ones, to gain access into our life. And I think that's what happened here. Something happened in this boy's life when he was young. It opened a door and the devil barreled through it. Is it fair? Absolutely not. But it's reality and we have to deal with it. When it comes to our own life, there's four different ways that the devil tends to try to influence us. Two are internal, two are external. The external ones are uh, temptation and oppression. Temptation is exactly what you think. James 1 says that we're tempted when our, by our own evil desires and we're dragged away and enticed. To me, those are handholds. We've talked about this before, kind of like a rock climbing wall. You want these things to grab onto so you can climb up the wall. That's what the devil is looking for in my heart and your heart. He's looking for something that he can grab onto so he can drag me away. Some evil desire in me that he can take advantage of. I'm not, you could put every alcoholic beverage, cigarette, tobacco, drug in this room, and I would not be tempted at all. That is not, there's no handhold in me for any of those. But you start coming after my reputation or what other people think about me. There's a huge handhold in my heart. I'm halfway down the road before you've got the sentence out of your mouth. That's the one that I have to deal with. You need to know your own heart. Where are the handholds there? That's where he's going to come. He's not going to tempt you in an area where he can't be successful. He's not stupid. We need to know our own hearts. Get rid of those handholds. The next one's oppression, which is kind of it's temptation on steroids. If you're a feeler, a lot of times you, you feel this way. You feel uh, pressed down, heavy. Um, you might use the word depressed. I don't mean clinically. There's something that's kind of come on you, fearful, anxious. Some of you talk about, maybe you've heard people talk about being under attack, and they're talking about their circumstances. All that is, that's oppression, the enemy trying to push you down. Those external things, you respond by resisting. James says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. That's what you do. You don't give in. That means you've lost. When you're tempted, you resist. When you're, when, you're, when you're oppressed, as hard as it is to do, you resist. No. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I'm not walking down this road of feeling sorry for myself today. Yes, my circumstances are falling. Jesus is my rock. I'm, I'm not going down that road today. Whatever it is, you get that. You've got to fight those things. You resist the devil and he will flee. The other two are strongholds and possession. This boy is possessed by a demon. He's not in control of his body. Some people see epilepsy here. He doesn't have epilepsy. He's demonized. It's two completely different things. If you have epilepsy, you can go to a doctor and take medicine. If, you have a, if you're possessed by a demon, medicine doesn't help. You need to be set free. They're two different things. That's This boy, if you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about being possessed. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you, and he's not going to be roommates with a demon. Don't worry about it. 
but many of us struggle with this idea of strongholds. Ephesians talks about giving the devil a foothold. A stronghold kind of gives him access into your heart. It's no longer an external thing. He gets into your heart. Normally from something when you were young. I hate going back to childhood, but that's the way a lot of this works. Take the stereotype for guys that struggle, pornography. You're 10, 11, and 12. Most of you who've struggled with pornography, you were introduced to it by an older brother, an older cousin, or an older guy down the street. You thought you were going to play Atari, and he puts in something else in the VCR. And since that moment, you've wrestled with that. I can remember I was in the fourth grade. I went to a spend-the-night party, and the guy said, we're going to watch reruns of The Cosby Show. I love The Cosby Show. It's Nightmare on Elm Street. I can still sing the theme song to that movie that I saw one time when I was nine years old. It was a foothold for the devil into my life. It made me scared for years. Fear, that's a stronghold from the enemy. I didn't do anything wrong. That guy didn't tell us that's what we were going to watch. If he had my parents wouldn't let me go to the party. But he did it, and I was stuck. It was 11 or 12 o'clock at night. I hid under the ping pong table the whole time, but I still saw, I heard it. There was nothing. But it didn't matter that it wasn't my fault. I still have to deal with the fact that there's a stronghold in my life around fear. And the same thing is true for you. It doesn't matter if it was your fault. What matters is, are you still wrestling? Do you still have this stronghold? Katie White was here at 9, and during that Lift High song, she came forward and said, I really feel like God has a word for our congregation. I want you to hear this. She works in the juvenile justice system, and she says she sits shoulder to shoulder with kids every day who are shackled. They have the chain around their waist, and it's holding their hands, and it's, they're chained at, the, at their feet as well, so all they can do is shuffle. They can't even sign their name without bending over and all these weird contortions because they can't move their hands. She said the first time, it's heartbreaking when the mom sees their kid in these shackles. And she was saying to us, that's God. He's sitting there and he looks at us and we're chained up. He's got the key. All we have to do is ask. And it'll set us free. It breaks his heart. See, African impalas. It breaks his heart to see creatures that he's made to run and to jump, living in a little enclosure with a three-foot-high wall because they're too scared to jump over it. The same thing is true for us. We get bound up by these things, and they're huge to us. And we think, I'm never going to be free. I've wrestled with this for 20 years or 25 years or whatever it is. He's got the key. He's totally willing to break the chains. If you'll ask him this morning before you leave, I'm begging, bring it into the light. It's the most difficult step in the process. It's actually admitting to somebody else, I wrestle with this. You'll be amazed how much freedom you get just by confessing it. It takes something from the darkness where the enemy lives into the light where Jesus is. Just do that before you leave. Come tell me. I won't tell anybody else. Just confess to me. I'll pray with you, and we'll begin to walk this road of freedom. It's thrown, it's thrown him often into the fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. We'll come back to that at the end. Skip down to verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. There's two stages in this. Uh, Bo Bryant, our worship leader, lives across the street from me. I kind of keep my eye on him that way. On Friday, I cut my grass, and on Friday, Bo tilled his front yard. They're not the same thing. Weeds grow up, and, that, and I cut them down, and my yard looks great for three days. You drive by pretty fast, everything's green, well manicured. After three or four days, you can, just, you can tell what's a weed and what's not a weed. The Holy Spirit is not a lawnmower. He's a tiller. It's much more invasive work. He gets in there, and he starts churning all of this stuff that's deep in your heart. Bo doesn't have any weeds anymore because he's tilled them all up. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. This whole idea of how the enemy works in our life. There's no, it's not a, some big boogeyman. What the Holy Spirit wants to do, he'll come and pull all of that stuff out. Whether it was your fault or not, whatever your contribution, none of that matters. He's going to pull all of it out by the roots if you'll let him. This boy, people thought he was dead. And there's times where when the Holy Spirit's doing that in your life, you're going to wish you were dead. Because it's painful work at times, but it's necessary. I still have weeds. Bo doesn't. That's the first step, this cleansing. But there's a second step as well. Jesus says this in Matthew 12. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds a it finds house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. They go in and live there, and the final condition of that man is worse than the first. If Bo doesn't go plant some grass soon, the weeds are going to come back. You can't have a vacant lot. And our hearts are the same way. It can't stay vacant. We need to be cleansed of these evil influences, and we also need to be filled with righteous influences. Paul says clearly, be filled with the Holy Spirit on a regular basis. Every time we empty something out, every time we get rid of something that's holding us back, we want to replace it with something that will help move us forward. We don't want to leave empty room in our hearts because the enemy will come back in. We want to fill those things with a righteous influence. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He said, this kind can only come out by prayer. I think this is, to me, is what happened. What's happening? The disciples were going up to this kid. They'd seen Jesus drive out demons before. They had done the same thing, and they're just they're saying the magic words, abracadabra. And then it doesn't work, and so they're saying it louder, and they're putting hands on different parts of his body, and they're, you know, let's dance this way, let's walk in a circle counterclockwise. They're doing all of this stuff to try to recreate these moments that they had witnessed. They're totally disconnected from Jesus. He's up on a mountain. They're down here doing this thing, and they're just trying to repeat what they've seen. And what Jesus says is prayer, staying connection. Prayer is asking God to get involved in your life. John 15, 5. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Stay connected, abide, remain in me, and you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The disciples had quit. They'd cut that connection. They'd severed it. They were working on technique. And Jesus says, that's how come it didn't work, because it's not technique. It's not your power. You're a channel of the power that comes from heaven. And the way you access that is prayer, asking God to get involved. And again, I think the word for us, stay connected, remain in him for that. We're going to close with this. Bo, you can come on back up. This idea of if, if you can help him. And Jesus says, if everything is possible for him who believes. I want to say two things. One, 
Saying everything is possible is not the same thing as saying everything is going to happen in actuality. Those are, we've all lived long enough to know that's not true. Just because God can do X doesn't mean X always gets done. What Jesus is getting at is, are you willing to take the step of faith? We never know how it's going to work out. It's not faith if it's guaranteed. It's not. There's always going to be a faith step. What he's asking is, are you willing to take the step? This man legitimately is pulling back. He's brought his son. Who knows if his son, his son absolutely has been publicly embarrassed, maybe even traumatized by the disciples. And he's thinking, I don't know, I want to put my kid, un- I don't know I want to, that I want to put him back out here. And Jesus says, it's, if you'll believe, it's possible. Will, will you take the step again? And this is the great news that we all need to hear. The guy says, I believe, help me with my unbelief. There's only one thing we bring to dinner, and it's faith. God provides everything else. What he's looking for from us is faith. And what he says is, you know what, I'll help you make it too. You're struggling with the one thing that you bring to the table. I'll help you get there with that as well. This morning, what, what, what is the if for you? Is it one of these areas where you're chained? There's been a stronghold in your life for years. It's a thought pattern. I'm, this is stereotyped. For women, it's usually, it's usually here. It's thought patterns that they have. For guys, it's usually sinful behavior. Those are stereotypes. Is that it for you? There's a stronghold in your life. And you're saying, if, I don't know that, I've prayed this prayer a hundred times and it's never worked. And he's saying, if everything is possible, ask him, help me overcome my unbelief. Come forward, let us pray for you this morning. Maybe something else is going on in your life. There's another area where you're just wondering if you can do something. And you need to hear loud and clear, it's possible if you'll believe. Let me pray, you guys can stand and we'll close. God, my prayer for everybody in this room is that we would leave nothing on the table. Everything that you want to do in our lives, God, we want to say yes to. And particularly for any this morning who are chained up, God, I pray they would not leave until they have asked for you to set them free. I know it can be difficult to admit a struggle, but that's the enemy making it bigger than it is, trying to keep us in darkness. And God, my prayer is for courage this morning to bring anything that's dark out into the light where you can set us free. In Jesus' name, amen.